Hi there, folks, and welcome to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zivna Kajimam again. Glad to have you with us or back with us today. Uh, as expected, and thankfully so, the rainy season does seem to have ended, at least for now. We've had a beautiful sunny weekend, and I was finally able to get to the beach. First time this year. Uh, chose a less central one, obviously, which not many people come to, and where it was very easy to keep our distance. And boy, did I need that. So, yes... Feeling refreshed and happy to be back in the saddle and back with you today. And today's episode, as well as our next episode, is a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with a super nice young investor from South Africa, Daphne Thompson. She's a seasoned investor in her own backyard and also in the UK, where I was actually surprised to find out rental yields can be a lot higher than what I thought they were. So food for thought uh, for all of us global real estate enthusiasts out there. Now, Daphne recently moved to Japan, and of course, like all switched-on investors um, who visit a foreign country for the first time, I know I always do that, um, she's already sussing things out and looking for the best way uh, to capitalize on the property market here. She's got a really great YouTube channel where she documents her journey and everything she's learning along the way, uh, interviews with property professionals, investors, and other folks who are somehow involved in real estate here, and last week was my turn. So we had a really nice long conversation, which she's broken up into two parts, and I'll publish them in the same way. But if you want to get the entire conversation without having to wait for next week's episode, feel free to hop over to our channel. We'll link to it in this episode show notes. It's already up there, and it's a great channel to check out and subscribe to as well, particularly if you're new to Japan's property market. So be sure to give us some love there as well. And also, if you're interested in actually looking at my ugly mug, which you can't really do via the podcast, our conversation on her YouTube channel was recorded via Zoom, so you can actually see us talking rather than just listen to the conversation. Oh, and in her intro, she calls me a real estate tycoon. So just want to clarify that this is definitely not the case. No mogul here. Uh, Chikako and myself have only purchased about a dozen properties in Japan uh, ourselves to date. And three of those were actually for our own personal use. So the hundreds of property purchases that we keep uh, mentioning and, and talking about here were facilitated mainly on behalf of our clients. Um, so yeah, not a tycoon, uh, but thanks for the compliment, Daphne. We do um, love our job and we think we're pretty good at it. So thank you for that. So here it is, the first part of my conversation with Daphne Thompson, in which we discuss mainly the common pitfalls that beginning investors might stumble upon in their journey here in Japan, and especially those without having, uh, who don't have a previous experience in Japan's property market. So enjoy, and I shall see you on the other side. Hi! So today I have the utmost privilege to speak to one of the tycoons of property here in Japan, Ziv Makajima Magen. Yes, it took me a while to get that name. But he really is freaking phenomenal. And he set some time aside to have a, a little chat with me. So let me tell you about Ziv. He came to Japan in 2011. Him and his wifey, and they started to purchasing purchase property, invest in Japan, and realized that they that was really actually a, a tricky thing, specifically if you're a foreigner. So him and his wifey established a business called Nippon Tradings International, and it's a buyer's agency, which basically focuses on how to help investors in any form or way if you want to purchase property here in Japan. So these are they help people from. Um, assisting investors, holiday homeowners, or anyone interested in Japan property to research, negotiate, conduct due diligence on, purchase, and manage property anywhere in Japan. 
He is a wealth of knowledge and I have the privilege to chat to him today. This is what we're going to talk about. A little bit about the COVID effect that it had on the Japanese market. Our abandoned houses, houses a strategy. Uh, negotiating with the Japanese because that I have experience in is rather tricky. And a whole lot more. So, here's Ziv. Alright, awesome. So thank you so much for making some time for me today. Um, please do tell me, how did you end up in Japan being an, an Israeli? Um, I actually came here from Australia. So I, from Israel, I went to Australia when I was 28 or so. And then I lived there for about a decade. And then three years into Australia, I sort of married into the country and just started uh, visiting here a lot. And then when our son hit um, elementary school age, we just decided to move here. So we've been here ever since, about seven, eight years now. That's pretty awesome. So you met your wifey in Oz, but she's Japanese. Uh, yes, that's right. Oh, okay. All right. So the one thing that um, I listened to some of your podcasts, it is really very cool content. Absolutely awesome. Oh, thank you. Um, you said that the, the property prices here are relatively stable. Now, the podcast that I listened to was, I think, in 2017. And the only thing that you said could really uh, make things um, shift a little bit was either if there is a massive immigration coming in or if there's a big baby boom. Um, but how have you experienced the market now during COVID? Because that was, that was like a full-on something from the side that just went in. No yeah, well, I'll, I'll, back, I'll backtrack a little bit first. Um, mm -hmm. Property prices here have been stable or even rising, um, but that's just since 2012 or so, so for the last uh, eight years. Prior to that, there was two and a half decades of uh, deflation. So property prices actually plummeted since the early 90s. Okay. And then okay. since 2012, they sort of bottomed out, which was uh, about the time that uh, the current prime minister came in, Shinzo Abe. Yeah, you mentioned and him quite a bit. Tell me, what is the significance about him? Sorry. Um, well, he's sort of turned things around economically, or at least uh, on the surface. So Japan had a big bubble burst here in the early 1990s, mm. which is when it was at its peak. And um if you talk to a lot of people that have actually been going here since the 80s or 90s, they always have this impression of Japan being the most expensive place in the world because it was at the time. And, but then since then, everything, cost of living, cost of property, um, everything really took a really big hit from early 90s until about 2012. So um, when he came in, that was the first time that they had somebody who was really focused on improving the economy and was really internationally savvy and opened or tried to open Japan up to the world. And that, that took hold. So property prices started uh, inching up and then going up sharply. Um, they brought the consumption tax up. The cost of living went up a little bit. Um, salaries haven't caught up or not, not to the same extent anyway. So Japan's had a bit of a revival since late 2012. So when we say property prices have been stable or rising, that's only in that period of time. So that's about eight years, but on the back of two and a half decades of deflation. So I wouldn't call the environment a pretty um, capital growth oriented environment, or at least not yet. It'll take a bit more than that. All right. So how did the COVID situation change the market price if any if you from your experience it did a little bit so 
especially in bigger cities, um, mainly Tokyo, Osaka, and Nagoya, we've seen prices slip down a fair bit. Um, for Tokyo and Osaka, that's not a bad thing because they were actually inching up a bit too high for comfort. They were pretty close to where they were pre-bubble burst, like pre-1990s. So for Tokyo and Osaka, that, that's probably a good thing. Um, Nagoya took a hit. Um, other cities, maybe not so much, or at least not yet. So Kyoto, Fukuoka, Sapporo, um, the other big cities are pretty much where they were pre-COVID. But even there, we can now negotiate prices down a little bit more than we used to be able to, say, about a year ago. And uh, in Tokyo and Osaka, we're seeing prices that we haven't seen for five, six years. So they've gone down, say, 15, 20% or so. All right. You use the word negotiate now that I find really interesting because in one of your other podcasts, you said that the Japanese find negotiation as conflict. So how do you approach this extremely shy and conservative nation as a foreigner? Um, your average, I'd say, street Japanese um, doesn't consider negotiation to be, well, when we say it's it is considered conflict, but investors, especially from the older school, people who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, are sort of put up with that. People who buy and sell properties do realize that there's going to be some negotiation. Um, but you're not going to see crazy low, low ball offers like you see in other countries. Right? Like when I was selling a property in Australia, people were coming in at like 40, 50% off the uh, advertised uh, listing price. That doesn't really happen here. I mean, the most we'd be able to see is maybe... 10% off, maybe 20% if the property is vacant or in need of some serious TLC and that sort of thing. Um, so it's not as prominent. And even in that case, there's some people who just get offended when you try to negotiate with them. But one, what I talk about in the podcast when I say they don't tend to negotiate is more referring to the tenants. So okay. your average run-of-the-mill tenant who's been living in a property, let's say somebody moved into a property, say, 20 years ago, which is not that rare in Japan because um, they like to stay in the same place if they can and uh, they don't like to move much. So if you've got a tenant who moved in, say, just after the bubble burst, say 1990 or 1995, so 20 years have passed, the cost of living is now half, salaries have gone down, and if they actually look around, they'll be able to find a comparable rental for about half the price. But they're never or almost never going to approach the landlord and ask for a discount. Right? It just doesn't happen. And if if you come to them at the end of the lease and say, okay, well, we're raising the rent now because, you know, the economy is doing well and prices of rent have gone up, then for them, that's considered a, um, a conflict. So they might, they might move out and they'll never ask you for a discount. So it works in our favor um, when rental prices go down, but when we want to take them up, we need to take into account that the tenant might just move out as soon as we tell them that. And that's okay if we know that we can get a, different tenant for a higher price, but otherwise it's something to consider. Yeah, if there's a demand, then yes, there's no risk on our side. That's right. All right. Uh, so which property sectors do you think is currently thriving in, in the COVID situation? The properties that are most attractive, purchase price-wise, that are mm -hmm. most attractive now are um, ex-hospitality properties. So people who have been running uh, little Airbnb operations and suddenly lost all of their bookings for like two years ahead. Um, retail properties, commercial properties, because a lot of businesses have had to uh, scale down or even close. Um, so people who own these kinds of properties um, kind of fire selling them now. 
um, little hotels, uh, yokans, like little inns in the countryside, that sort of thing. Um, and generally, like I was saying, the market's a bit softer now, so it's easier to negotiate prices for um, for properties than it was five or six months ago. So would you say it's a buyer's market now? Oh, definitely buyer's market now, yeah. All right, so for all of our investors out there, this is the time that you should try and, and find a, a good deal. Our clients have been having a field day yeah, in the last three, four months. That is awesome. So you, you mentioned the, the hospitality industry. Japan has a very unique way, like everything else they, they do, but a very unique yeah. way of handling Airbnb. How does that work? Um, it used to be a bit of a gray area until uh, mid, mid last year, or is it mid 2018 already, when they put in some new legislation. Um, and from that point onwards, they changed a few things. So first of all, they made you jump through a lot more hoops if you want to actually um, comply and have a license to do it properly. And so you they have, have to have a license to do that? Yeah, well, you have to register with City Hall and let them know that you're running an Airbnb. And if you want to rent it out for more than half the year, um, you do need to apply for an actual hotel license. Um, which wow. is not not that complicated of a process in Japan, but it obviously brings in a, a lot more compliance issues that you might not have had to think about before. So fire and safety and hygiene, and you need to have um person available on call within a certain distance from the property 24-7, that kind of thing. Um, so it, it's become a bit more difficult. And one of the um one of the most stringent things that they've done is that they've now given um owner co-op, so let's say units in a co-owned block or each unit is owned by a different owner. Um, so they gave the owners co-op and the building management company the right to decide uh, that they're not going to allow Airbnb or th- they don't call it Airbnb, they call it Minpaku, which is short-term rental. So basically anything that's done without a lease, like just letting guests in and out kind of thing. Um, and for periods of less than one month. So for that, you need approval from building management or from the owner's co-op. and I'd say about 99% of them are not allowing that. Now, would you recommend Airbnb as an investment strategy? Uh, uh, maybe not as a unit, but if you have a full block, w- would that then be better? Yeah. So if you own the entire structure, yes, that's definitely a lot more viable. Um, but still there's compliance. So if, if you say if say you own a building that's only got, say, four units in it, so you really have to factor in the cost of compliance. So to make sure that the building um, satisfies the uh, MINPAC with the short-term stay legislation and has all the um, uh, fire and safety and hygiene and, and regular cleaning and so forth that comes with that. And the cost of, um, I mean, if you're living in one of the units and you're there, that's okay. But if you're not, if you're a remote investor, then you, wanna, you need to have somebody within a certain distance of the property that's available to take calls. And um, so you just need to factor all of that in and see if it's worth your time. And the other thing is that it, it's a lot more hands-on, obviously, than just being a, a long-term lease landlord, right? Mm. So is- you need to um, take care of check-ins and check-outs and problems and people that pay and don't pay and take bookings and constantly check your occupancy rates and see if you're profitable or not. So it's, um, it's a full-on job. So on the one side, it's nice job creation. And the other side, it's yeah. a little bit of a headache. Yeah, but I mean, it can, when it goes well, it can more than double the rental income you'd get from a normal long-term lease. So it's worth it if you've got the time and the bandwidth to deal with it. All right. 
is there a, um, a certain period of time that, um, so if you've got the hotel lease or the hotel license, the hospitality license, can you lease it all year round? Can you do Airbnb yes. all year round? So if yes. you don't, then it's only a certain amount of time per year. Under that time frame. So what people often do is they rent it out, uh, Minpaku Airbnb, for half the year. And then the, the other half of the year, they put in people with normal leases for something like, say, monthly rentals. So somebody rents the place for a month or two months or six months. And then they, they don't fall under that legislation. And that's okay. That's considered a normal lease for the rest of the year. All right, cool. So this is also Airbnb is a solid strategy with different factors that you need to keep in mind. Yes, it's not as easy as, um, say, Europe, Australia, a lot of other places. Um, you got a place, you just rent it out, you book people in and out, and you make sure, I mean, they might be more or less satisfied with what you provided, but you don't have to go through any um, legal compliance issues, unless anything happens, obviously, but otherwise. Yeah. Um, but yeah. here, it's not like that. So here, like everything Japanese, at least in the last year and a half or so, you do have to uh, make sure that you're doing everything by the book. Um, native Japanese who don't really care much about visas and stuff, a lot of them still operate it in a gray sort of area. Um, but for foreigners, it's a risk because if you, if you break the law, they could officially kick you out of the country. So, Of course. There's been sure. a few uh, Brits in that that have actually gone to jail for a couple of weeks in Tokyo, I think, when they uh, ran a follow that one. Really? Yeah. Wow. Because uh, one of our investment strategies is Airbnb. So one of our, our properties, it's a full-on family house in South Africa. And they yeah. will just literally list it, put the price, Airbnb takes their fee, and that's that. If there's anything maintenance that needs to be done, it's like they just contact us on WhatsApp and it, it's sorted or through Airbnb. But there's none of the, the additional um, hands-on or additional licensing. What is the reason for that here in Japan? That really depends on who you ask. Um, the official story is um, official story is that it's uh, to regulate the industry to make it less risky and make sure that people don't have accidents and that everyone's registered and uh, and uh, accountable for whatever they do with the property. Um, I would say it's probably a mix of um, a um, the hotel lobby is pretty powerful in Japan and they've exerted some serious. Um, influence to make sure that the people who come to stay here because especially with the olympics that was coming up and the rugby world mm. cup before that there was a lot of need for uh, budget uh, budget accommodation and uh, airbnb uh, really flourished here in the two years leading into that and i think the hotel lobby just got a bit freaked out by that so they did what they could through their lobbyists and the other thing is that um Japanese people can be quite foreigner shy, to put it gently. And um, when they see foreigners running around the building, um, you know, obviously not all guests know exactly what to do with the rubbish, um, what goes out on what day and what color bag, and they speak foreign language in the hall, and they tend to be a bit louder than your average Japanese tenant. Um, and they, they just don't like that. It's, yeah. um, it's a bit racist, but it's no different to any other place in the world. I mean, you look at uh, tourist uh, locations like um, Venice and Italy or New York or a lot of other places. There are a lot of people complaining about the same sort of things, except they don't have the government backing. And here it's very easy for people to complain enough for the uh, local city hall to then complain to, um, to the mayor's office. And then the mayor's office complains. Enough mayors complain to uh, the national government and then a new legislation just comes in. 
Japan, I just find so efficient and so for their own people. It, like, I really love it. Uh, but then if you're on the other side, I'm like, but I really like it and I appreciate it and I agree with it, but I want to be on that side. So, yeah. <laughs> so the other thing that I wanted to chat to you about is um, the abandoned houses. We all know that Japan has a decreasing population. So there's, especially on the outskirts of the cities, there's quite a few places that are just abandoned. Is that yep. a potential um, investment opportunity? If so, how? Um. I would say there's two aspects to that. So it can be a good investment opportunity if you're either a DIY kind of person. And again, you've got the time and the bandwidth to move into the place and redo it yourself. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is if you're a company that does that on a regular basis for a living and you've already got the connections in place to uh, execute cheap renovations and you've got the uh, negotiation power to purchase quite a few of these deals at a lower bulk price. And there's definitely, definitely a strategy and people do do that. Um, but if you're average run-of-the-mill investor who's, again, remote, only have maybe, I don't know, a portfolio of up to uh, three, four, five, ten properties, and you're going to have to just hire contractors um, off the phone book to do the work for you, and you might not have um, quite the cloud or negotiation power to buy super, super cheap, um, then it might be not that profitable. Particularly since um, if you're selling it for a profit within five years, then any gain you might have gained on it is um, capital gains taxes doubled within the first five years, mm. which you're exempt from um, if you're a real estate company. If you're actually a registered company doing this for a living, um, then you wouldn't have to pay that extra tax and you'd probably have, uh, you'd be better positioned to make it more profitable. Um, but if you're the DIY type, definitely. And the other thing you can do with it is... Um, if you buy one of these older, cheaper houses and you turn it into accommodation, right? So Airbnb type place or some sort of like you create, if you buy out in the countryside where they're really cheap, I mean, you can buy these old houses for a few thousand bucks in the countryside, but then nobody would come there to stay unless you create the attractivity, right? So you turn the place into a really attractive accommodation center for foreigners, maybe, um, or you create a bit of a cultural vibe around a particular village that's not really known to foreigners or to even to Japanese tourists. Um, but again, that's a full-on, hands-on job. So it's something yeah. that you take a look at. Yeah. So the bottom line is if there's not a rental demand, usually it's not a good investment. You always have to just try and get the rental demand. Well, you have to get creative. There's no, there's definitely room for being creative with these types of properties. Um, if you buy something in a place or a profile of property that wouldn't attract normal long-term tenants, then you have to attract short-term tenants. And for that, you have to work harder and create something that actually attracts them. And, and then it's probably seasonal as well. Um, depending on location, like uh, outskirts of Tokyo is not really seasonal. There'll be people there anywhere. If you're buying out near the ski slopes or near the beach, yes. But um, um, foreign tourists are seasonal, but a lot of Japanese people are traveling between cities for various reasons, and they're not not as seasonal as others. Okay. So it it is doable. The other thing is, um, I mean, you can buy a place even in the city, um, renovate it and then lease it out long term if the location is good enough there would be a family that would eventually probably rent it for you if that area is a rental sort of area some areas are populated more by owners occupiers so you do have to um, just do your research a little bit 
pre-purchase. And then again, if you're not DIY, you better have the connections to make that renovation not too costly. Otherwise, there's not going to be much of a profit in it. Thank you. Um, all right, so now for the average Joe that just wants to come in. Um, I have a little cash. I think Japan is a good place to invest. What is the best thing that you would recommend for, even if someone's just starting out to, what would you recommend is the best way to go forward on that? Um, well, if it's a hands-free type of investor, somebody who just wants to park their money somewhere and get a steady, um, steady monthly income or annual income, Condos and apartments are usually, um, well, for one, they're the most popular and easiest to find tenants for. Mm. And uh, they carry a lot less maintenance than the houses do because the houses in Japan are built in such a way and from such materials that tend to um, create a lot of need for maintenance. Um, so if you're, depending on your budget, I would probably point people towards either getting a few apartments or a building or a few buildings that have apartments in them. Um, and then again, depending on the budget, if you can afford to buy something um, a little bit bigger and newer, then you'd probably get better quality tenants as well. Um, but even if you don't, the cheap cash cows are actually the older studio sort of one-bedroom apartments that host singles or maybe couples at most. Um, and they, they tend to generate high rental yield uh, on a monthly basis, but for a shorter period of time, because as the building gets older, the building fees go up, the maintenance, structural maintenance goes up and so forth. But condos are definitely the asset class of choice for hands-free investors. And is that something that you can help with? So if I come to you and I give you a certain amount and I say help, would you be able to assist with that? Yes, that's what we do. So you'll be able to, if, even if I don't know the areas, you'll be able to specialize in the specific areas, telling us these are the things that we should look out for? Yeah, but depending on your criteria. I mean, some people are more potential growth oriented. Some people mm -hmm. are more uh, cash flow oriented. Some people try to strike a balance. So we'd first try to understand what it is exactly that you're trying to achieve and within what budget. And then we'd try to point you in the right direction. We'd probably offer a bit of diversity if possible. So don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you've got a budget that can spread over a few properties, that's probably better. Mm. Um, but yes, that's what we do. It's not all that we do, but it's most of what we do on a regular basis. Yeah. Are you also a licensed uh, agent? No, no, we don't want to share our commissions with it. But the thing is with them, um, licensed realtors are um, forced by law to share their commissions with other realtors. And for that reason, a lot of realtors would prefer to sell directly to buyers. So hmm. as soon as a real, for example, if we work with a realtor, which we regularly do, um, the first thing that they would need to tell the realtor that they contact the listing realtor that is that they're the buyer side realtor. And then the seller side realtor, if he can get an easier sell direct and keep the entire commission to themselves, they prefer not to work with the realtor. And so we prefer to stay away from that. And the first thing we do when we introduce ourselves to another realtor is, um, oh, we've got our pitch perfected. But one of the first things that we say is, uh, don't worry, you don't have to share your commission. You can keep the entire thing. We just represent the customer. They pay us separately. You don't need to worry about that. And then the second thing that they uh, need to hear from us is you'll never need to meet a scary foreigner or talk in English or anything like that. And then they usually agree to work with us. Not always, but usually. So the, the shyness and the foreigner almost scaredness is such a real thing. It's a very real thing. I mean, it's not as bad in Tokyo 
Um, it's getting better in Osaka. There's a few other foreigner hotspots like where the U.S. Army bases are, so Yokosuka or in Okinawa and Niseko up in Hokkaido, which is a ski village that's populated uh, at least 50% by um, foreigners, mainly Australians recently. Um, but aside from those places, which are usually, because they're very well-known internationally, prices there are pretty high and yields are compressed. So the rest of the country, um, foreigner shyness is still very much a thing, yeah. Hmm. How do you overcome that? Um, by doing that, by presenting them with a Japanese face to deal with and telling them that they'll never need to speak directly to the customer and that all documentation will be Japanese just the way that they're used to and explain that we're fully authorized and show them the documents saying that we're authorized to um, represent the customer 100%. And even then, it can't be me that does that. It has to be um, my wife and her staff, the native Japanese that handle that side. Um, otherwise, they just they freak out. So you guys have the, like the perfect team. You do the you do expat side and she does the Japanese side. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Don't know about perfect without each other's throats a lot, but yeah. Oh, like any keeps any relationship healthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for watching. That was um, an absolute phenomenal chat that I had with Ziv Makajima Magen. Um, yeah, please do look in the description for his contact details if you want to get hold of him. And... Uh, Please do subscribe and please do comment if there's anything that you probably want to know about investing. Stay tuned for next week's um, or next times. We are going to go chat a little bit more with Ziv and then we're going to discuss what it means to do due diligence. Um, how can his company help? And what is Ziv's specific uh, next move in the property market? See you guys next time. So there you have it. Nice little chat. I know I really enjoyed it. Daphne's a real pleasure to talk to. She's bright and lovely and super smart. And I'm sure she'll do really, really well investing here in Japan when she gets started, um, as she's obviously done in other countries as well. So again, do check out her YouTube channel in the show notes. And of course, don't forget to also let us know what you think about this episode, the conversation or the podcast in general in the comments section of wherever you might have found it. And we would absolutely love it if you could also take a moment of your time right before you skip over to the next episode on your playlist to leave us a star rating or a short review in the iTunes store, Spotify, wherever you might be tuning in from. Your word of mouth is what keeps us keeping on. Hope to have you with us again next time. Stay safe, stay home if you can. And when you do go out, please try to avoid crowded and particularly crowded and closed spaces. And of course, put your mask on wherever you step out. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI and from Daphne Thompson, Yoroshiku.